Join founder of I Am a Watchman Ministries, Scott Townsend, with co-host Dylan Burroughs, bringing you a fascinating discussion regarding the importance of Bible prophecy and Christian living today as it relates to our responsibility as believers to be watchmen. This is A View from the Wall. Welcome to today's episode of A View from the Wall, and thank you for joining us. I'm Dylan Burrows, and Scott Townsend is out today, but instead I'm here with co-host Joe Kerr. He is the managing editor of I Am a Watchman Ministries, and I want to thank you, Joe, for being here with us today. Happy to be here. Well, in this episode, we're joined by Shelly Neese. Shelly Neese is the president of the Jerusalem Connection International, a nonprofit organization based out of Washington, D.C. Shelly has also lived and studied in Israel from 2000 to 2004. Further, Shelley is the author of the book, The Copper Scroll Project, which we'll talk more about in this episode. Shelley, welcome to the program of View from the Wall. Thanks for having me, Dylan. Well, Shelley, some of our listeners may be familiar with the name or the idea of the Copper Scrolls, but many are unfamiliar with what they actually are and why they're so important for us to understand today. So as we begin, take a little time to tell us the story behind the Copper Scrolls Project. Right. This is one of my favorite parts of any interview because... I'm sure a lot of your listeners, even the ones that consider themselves, you know, biblically literate and strong in the word may or may not, I doubt have heard of the the Copper Scroll. And that was my first feeling whenever I first started on this journey was, well, if the Copper Scroll was really that important, I would have heard of it. You know, I've right. lived in Israel. I'd studied Middle Eastern studies. I'd been to visit the Dead Sea Scrolls many times and really understood the importance of the Dead Sea Scrolls, of course. But the Copper Scroll just never made a blip on my radar in the beginning. And so, yeah, just warning to your listeners, once you know about the copper scroll, once the copper scroll goes into your head, it cannot come out. <laughs> like, it will haunt you. Um, it'll haunt you in your sleep in terms of its potential and promise. But it was 1947 when the first of the Dead Sea Scrolls were found and it lit the world on fire. The As archaeologists, really realized what they had on their hands, which was this hugely important find. The Dead Sea Scrolls predate the earliest versions of the Bible by a thousand years, and here they are holding, you know, the oldest versions of Isaiah, but also biblical commentaries that no eyes had seen for 2,000 years. And so it was Bedouin who found the first of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so, as you can imagine, there was a race happening between archaeologists and Bedouin. Bedouin would flood the black market with the Dead Sea Scrolls that they had found, but even despite the fact that you would have to buy them up off the black market, you lost the provenance. You lost knowing which cave this came out of, what other scrolls were hidden in that cave, which is a really important piece of information for archaeologists. So it was not in Israel's interest or academia's interest for it to continue that way. But really, Bedouin were much more successful in finding Dead Sea Scrolls than archaeologists. They were the kings of the desert, and they knew where to look. But in this one case, or with this one particular case, it was archaeologists that came onto a Dead Sea Scroll cave. You know, they referred to the Dead Sea Scroll caves by numbers. So this cave was called Cave 3. It was the third Dead Sea Scroll cave found. It was the spring of 1952, and it was an archaeological team led by a Frenchman. And, you know, 1952, the state of Israel is new, right? It's barely, barely out of the womb. Um, so all of this 
that's a separate conversation of the beauty that that is, that this gift that the Jews had given to the world, the the Bible, you know, is now suddenly being presented to them as a birthday present right after the modern state of Israel is born. So amazing in its own right. So cave three, it was sort of a disappointing cave because the roof of the cave had collapsed in antiquity. Mm-hmm. And so they could see that it had once held a vast library of Dead Sea Scrolls, but by the time they were able to get to it, the cave roof had collapsed, shattering the jars that had protected and housed the Dead Sea Scrolls. So really, there were scroll fragments just littered throughout the floor of the cave in rat's nest in the cave, you know, kind of in, in small dark corners, but but pretty damaged otherwise. And so for about 10 days, they excavated that cave which they could tell was once robust, but was fairly disappointing otherwise. And it was only on the last day in the last few hours, which I love. And this is just, you know, God has a ironic elements to all of, this, yes. all of his ordained stories. So it was on the last day, the last few hours, they're wrapping up the excavation and they see a lot of these caves, when we say caves in the Judean desert, they're more like cave complexes, you know, multi-roomed caves sometimes. And so in this case, there was an extra chamber to the cave that they didn't notice before because there was a collapsed wall in front of it. And so they thought it worth their time chipping through that chipping through that limestone, which, you know, maybe it was put there by man. Maybe it had fallen there in antiquity. We don't know. But what they saw was a man-made shelf behind it. And resting on that man-made shelf were two copper rolls. And nothing had been found like that. I, I can't imagine, you know, being the archaeologist who was able to lay hands on that. But it looked as if it was deliberately hidden, almost like this, you know, secret document in a castle secret chamber hidden behind a false wall. I mean, you can't write a better script than that. And and there it was. And it took them several years to figure out how to open it because it crumbled at the slightest touch. It did what copper does and it oxidized and it turned green, the color of Statue of Liberty and was really, really fragile. And so it would take them a few years to figure out what it was actually saying and what what the scroll actually contained. Shelley, the copper scroll is really, from my understanding, a treasure map, Uh, but it's not a treasure map like we think of, you know, when you see on TV, you got the story, there's the unrolled thing and there's the big X that says treasure here. (laughs) That's not really what we've got here, is it? Right. Actually, maybe that would be helpful if that is what we had here. Yeah, this is the part where I have to hold my breath because I don't, you know, I don't this is real and this is true. And what I'm telling you is authentic. It's, it sounds crazy. Um, it sounds, you know, you definitely encourage all cynics out there to, to Wikipedia this after this interview, but no, it's a verbal treasure map. So the copper scroll, right. is not a physical treasure map. It's not X marked the spot, but it's a verbal treasure map. The copper scroll, when they were able to eventually roll it out was seven feet long. So those two rolls had once been, one, it had snapped when they were rolling it up in antiquity. So that's why we don't say copper scrolls, but copper scroll. And and so it was made on almost 100% pure copper. It's written in 12 columns. And from what we can tell, it's almost 60 locations of buried treasure. 
And my favorite part about the Copper Scroll, because it just speaks to its authenticity as as this ancient document that was meant for very practical purposes, is that it's written like a dry inventory. There's no heroes written into the Copper Scroll. There's no story. There's no legend built into it. I mean, if you were just reading it for your own sort of spiritual elevation, you would get nothing out of it in that way. It just reads like a, you know, someone's dry inventory grocery list from 2000 years ago. And so it's more, you know, what it's promising and and the potential that it has that's so exciting. But that's why Copper Dead Sea Scroll experts agree on almost nothing. Um, You know, academics have their own narcissism of small differences. And so Dead Sea Scroll conferences have ended in, in physical blows. But on the Copper Scroll, even though you would think it would be the most controversial of all the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's actually widespread agreement that this is a real and authentic document and that it's pointing to real treasure that existed 2,000 years ago. Where the end, the question mark comes is where did the treasure come from and who wrote the scroll? Because it doesn't, they don't identify themselves. Oh, that's amazing. And we hope you're enjoying our conversation with Shelly Neese. And stick with us. We'll be right back with more on A View from the Wall. From I Am a Watchman Ministries, here's today's I Am a Watchman Minute. Did you know we are living in a time when Bible prophecies are being fulfilled? In fact, more prophecies have been fulfilled in the last 70 years than in the 700 years leading up to that point in history. God is on the move. I understand why some may have reservations about studying prophecy. Much about the future is troubling. And yes, the ominous events in the book of Revelation are coming, but wonderful things are also coming. Bible prophecy references the glorious appearing, reward for believers, the wedding feast of the Lamb, and the millennial reign of Christ. And before any of those events, Jesus will come in the rapture to rescue His people. Are you ready for the Lord's return? We hope you'll take advantage of free I Am A Watchman resources to learn more. Be bold. Be faithful. Be a watchman. Iamawatchman.com Welcome back to A View from the Wall. We are talking with author and speaker Shelly Neese. And in this segment, we want to talk in more detail about her work regarding the Copper Scrolls. And Joe, lead us as we continue in this discussion. Shelly, the Copper Scroll is not what we would call a Christian document. This was composed in Jewish antiquity, way before the church started, way before Christ ever walked the earth. So why should Christians care about the Copper Scrolls? Right. So this actually, this question probably speaks to my heart in terms of just what I've been doing with my life for the last 20 years as well, and why I believe that it's important for Christians to track what's going on in Israel. But the reason why I love the Copper Scroll Project story is because I feel like, and I I hope this targets your audience as well, that many Christians are Zionists and extremely supportive of the Jewish nation just by their gut instinct, or, you know, as Christians, we would say the Holy Spirit's conviction. But that Zionism, at least in terms of what I've experienced, is often, it's assaulted by the outside world who sees Israel falsely as an oppressor country. And 
And I feel really passionately that we have to educate people on the Jewish story, not just modern Israel's story and not just biblical Israel, but the things that happened in between and just really highlighting and focusing on the Jewish story as a source for our own Zionism. And because the highest functioning kind of Zionism is an educated and articulate one. And so whether or not it's so that our kids, I have four kids, you know, whether or not they can hold up under anti-Israel attacks in their local colleges or so we can better confront our elected officials. I live in D.C. about matters that impact Israel. I mean, this book is the story of a treasure hunt, but it's also a human interest story. But above all of that, it's a story that it's a teaching tool about Israel, about ancient and modern Israel and bringing Christians into that space so that they can feel connected to both, that both are tethered, but they're also important to our own Christian faith as we consider ourselves pro-Israel and and Zionist and, and believers in the Jewish nation. There's a reference in the Copper Scroll to an additional scroll which may hold more keys or clues to understanding the code of the existing scroll. Do you believe that there's a second scroll? And if so, tell us a little bit about the evidence for that. Well, so funny enough, the the second scroll has been nicknamed the silver scroll. So a lot of times, you know, people will say, "Do you do you believe that the silver scroll exists?" So there there's no reference in the copper scroll to a silver scroll. That idea has just become kind of part of of popular culture legend around the copper scroll. Because well, if one's made out of copper, then it would make sense that the other one might be made out of silver. <laughs> so mm-hmm. so it's sort of been nicknamed silver scroll. But really, the copper scroll does point in the very last lines to to another scroll and with it they are one so almost as if if these are both inventories then then they go together to to be able to tell the full story of where to find these artifacts it's hard to know or these treasures it's hard to know what that other scroll could potentially have Certainly the Copper Scroll points to its existence and points to its helpfulness, but the Copper Scroll itself is pretty direct and pretty specific in terms of where these things are buried. One interesting thing about the Copper Scroll that could potentially be related to the other scroll is that there are Greek ciphers on the margin of the scroll. So the scroll is written in Hebrew, but there's Greek letters kind of written in the margins, almost as notations. And... There's one theory that should we find the other scroll that potentially if you match these together, these Greek letters that we can't figure out what they mean or what they're pointing to will match the other scroll to actually spell something or actually give more hints. The other idea is that they're just initials of the hiders, of the people that were in charge of the the burial operation for the treasure. We don't really know, but that's certainly a piece that we would look towards another scroll answering that question of what the Greek letters mean and any other clues in terms of where the treasure is. Or maybe it would just even be a scroll that would give some kind of background to the Copper Scroll. But the Copper Scroll, the language of the Copper Scroll, and this is what tripped people up about the Copper Scroll for so many years, it's it's so specific that it almost sounds as if if you just give it a cursory reading, it sounds like something, it sounds like they were writing it to themselves, that these were 
you know, notes that they were kind of gentle reminders for when they were fleeing Israel on the run because the enemy was at the gate, that they were going to go back and find these items one day. And so that is what tricked scholars because they would read things like the first line when it says, in the valley of a core under the ruin pass under the steps leading to the east 40 cubits there's a chest of money or it'll talk about sepulcher monuments or great cisterns of the courtyard of the peristyle and so it goes on and on like that for almost 60 locations of these very specific places and sometimes even we'll say place names that are lost to us after 2000 years and so that was the tricky part is if these things could be buried all over israel what peristyle, what courtyard, you know, what steps facing east. And so it kind of felt hopeless in the face of that to be able to identify any of that all over Israel, much less 2,000 years later. So just to clarify, again, for some Mm -hmm. of our listeners who may not be that familiar with the Copper Scroll itself, we're talking about temple treasures, as in the treasury of the temple, implements of the temple, the things that were actually in Solomon's temple? Well, so this is the this is the million dollar question. There is the cover scroll, I should say, it points to tons of treasure. It points to tons of silver and gold and vessels. So when we say treasure, we're not talking about you know minor amounts, it's copious amounts. And so that really, even where the copper scroll never outright says that these are temple items, it never, you know, says but even by virtue of the amount of treasure listed in the Copper Scroll, most scholars agree that it has to be connected to the Jewish temple. There is no other place that would have had access to that kind of, of wealth, certainly in Israel. And, and we know from the biblical sources and the historical sources that the temple was very wealthy. You know, at different points, it was depleted by invaders. After the Roman Empire conquered Jerusalem, Josephus, the first century historian, mm-hmm. notes that so much gold flooded the market that it it brought down the global price of precious metals. Wow. Because <laughs> it was, you know, right. So we know, and then the Bible says in Solomon's temple, silver was as common as rocks, which incidentally, silver is one of the, the most common things in the Copper Scroll. So in terms of the first temple versus so that's that's saying yes this has to be temple related oh and besides just how much wealth we're talking about it also will use adjectives that are holy it'll say sacred vessels or ritual vessels at one point it talks about priestly vestments which that's a real that's a real tip off um a gleaming chamber so there are just certain words here and there that definitely seem temple related Well, this is fascinating, and we're going to take a quick break, but there's still more to come, so stick with us and join us back in a moment on A View from the Wall.
Welcome back to A View from the Wall. We're talking with author and speaker Shelley Neese about the Copper Scrolls. And in this final segment, we want to discuss some of the connections between Shelley's work in Israel and what it means for our lives as Christians today. And Shelley, you've said that ancient Israel and all of its dilemmas are forever tethered to modern Israel. Now, when I think of that, I wonder, do Jews need to accept their history to accept Jesus as the Messiah? What are your thoughts on this? Right. I was actually communicating with one of the other Copper Scroll Project team members, or Chris Knight. He, we joke and say that he's our, our modern-day Essene. He's been working with Jim Barfield since the beginning of the project. You, you know, I've been talking about the Copper Scroll. I should say that the book is about Jim Barfield, who is an arts investigator from Oklahoma, who, in all intents of, of my opinion, has solved the Copper Scroll and knows where these treasures are buried. Both, they're also very, Chris and Jim are just really in tune to the, into the Bible and prophecy and, and, and where prophecies are pointing. And so I was thinking about this question last night and, and they brought up, or Chris brought up, Ezekiel 37 and Jeremiah 31. So I was reading those last night, and just this idea of the prophets pointing to a time that Israel will receive a new covenant. And in both of those cases, if you look at Ezekiel 37, if you look at Jeremiah 1 and Hebrews 8, all of these together, they are pointing to a time that Israel will be dwelling in its tabernacle. You know, it all brings the temple back to these prophecies in connection with Israel receiving the new covenant. So, and I don't think that that's just in a metaphorical sense that the prophets are saying this. And also they're, they're lamenting that Israel has broke the covenant with God, the, the Egypt covenant or the Mount Sinai covenant. And, but in, in, and God is lamenting, saying that they broke the covenant, though I was a husband to them. And so just this idea that in the ancient Middle Eastern tradition, a dowry to the bride was given by the father of the bride to the groom, right, as a symbol of the marriage right. covenant. And so when I think about it, I just have this this picture of seeing Israel reunited with its temple vessels and its, you know, the holiest parts of its history and being under this new covenant with its treasures unearthed. I mean, it just would be such an earth-shattering event that when I see it, I mean, I see it as not just shaking the faith of unbelieving Jews, but also Gentiles. I mean, something this big and something this momentous is bringing, we don't have anything from the from the sacrificial system that was connected to the tabernacle or the temple. We don't have any of those interior elements. And so to, to unearth the most important ones, to bring that out of the ground, just I love the idea of that in terms of a challenge to the world of all unbelievers. Like, try not to believe the Bible now. <laughs> right. I can't even imagine what it would be like to discover anything that was on the Copper Scroll with that inventory. Having read Shelley's book, it's amazing what could be found. I can't imagine how that would impact any country, but Israel, let's face it, things come out of the ground there every week. You you can't dig a basement without unearthing <laughs> some former civilization. Uh, Psalm 8511 says, truth springs up out of the ground. It's no place more true than in Israel. So with all the tension in the Temple Mount area specifically, if one item, no matter how insignificant, 
was discovered that was related to the original temple, how would that impact all of that conflict? I have one sort of recent historical example just to give us a little taste of what that might be like. But there was a small, tiny ivory pomegranate found that was related, immediately related to the temple because it had an inscription on it that seemed to read from the house of Yahweh. So it was celebrated as the first find um, from the interior of the temple and the sacrificial system. They bring it to the Israel Museum. They pay a lot of money. They keep the museum up, you know, way after its normal closing hours for floods of people to come see it. And and it's proved a forgery. So so now we know that, that that inscription from the house of Yahweh is a forgery. I'm talking about a pomegranate that is the size of my thumbnail. So if there was that much celebration around, you know, a tiny pomegranate that could have possibly been connected with the Jerusalem temple. I can't imagine if all of a sudden we're finding a priestly ephod like the Copper Scroll promises. Oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> when you look at what's happening in Israel right now on the Temple Mount, and this is just to get really political modern day, but if you visit the Temple Mount as a Christian or as a Jew, you have no right to prayer on the Temple Mount. The Muslim law controls all, they're the administrators of the Temple Mount. So even though technically after 1967, Israel has sovereignty over the Temple Mount, they gave back all administrative control of the Temple Mount to the Islamic Trust. And what is the what does the Islamic, Islamic Trust do to, to repay the Israelis in kind, but to forbid Jewish prayer on the Temple Mount, prevent Christian prayer on the Temple Mount. You can't even, you know, eat a date on the Temple Mount because they know that Jews have to say a blessing before they do that. You certainly can't go up there with a Psalms book and you can be arrested for it, for praying on the Temple Mount if you're not Muslim. So to me, I mean, this is a baseline human rights issue almost at this point, that there is no religious freedom on the Temple Mount, the most holy place to the Jewish people. So for a lot, for good reason, that has bothered a pretty important segment of the Israeli population. And so whether or not they're saying, you, you know, whether or not they're going straight into advocating for a third temple is a different issue. But right now, the way a lot of that is being articulated is the right to worship on the Temple Mount. And and so I call that the Temple Mount movement in the book because there's a lot of different groups and a lot of different associations that are fighting for that. But, you know, the Sanhedrin has been restarted, and one of the Sanhedrin's primary goals is to reestablish worship on top of the Temple Mount. So what I'm seeing happening on the Temple Mount is just this urge to reconnect with it in a way that hasn't didn't come naturally in 1948 or 1967. At those point, in 1948, Jews were happy to be back in their land. In 1967, they were happy to worship at the Western Wall. So it's only, you know, we see that psychologists talk about this in terms of, you know, that a lot of times people that have been persecuted for long periods of time almost have this mentality of, that they don't deserve, you know, that, well, we'll, we'll just be thankful for this. We don't deserve the other. And so I feel like that's almost evident here in Jewish history of it's taken them this long to think, no, wait, this isn't right. We should be able to pray at our holiest place. We should be able to visit it. 
We have just a few moments, and as we close, Shelley, I want to give you an opportunity, as we do with our other guests, as someone who's literally stood in Jerusalem, what is a final word of encouragement you'd like to give with those who are considering themselves watchmen or watchwomen for the Lord who are listening right now? Okay, so so right now, I just I think about Psalms one twenty six, and I just encourage your listeners to to be like the dreamers that God. When God talks in Psalms twenty six, He's saying that God restores the fortunes of Zion, and they will be like dreamers, their mouths filled with laughter and songs of joy. So to me, this idea that we're just looking to Israel, that we're looking to what God's doing there. And it isn't just about Jews coming to belief in their Messiah. It's about us recognizing what God is doing in the world through Israel. And it's our chance to just see that fidelity in our God and, and to connect with, with his time and his Bible and his land. Amen. And Shelly, thank you again for joining us on A View from the Wall. ShellyNeese.com. That's Shelly spelled S-H-E-L-L-E-Y and Niece N-E-E-S-E. ShellyNeese.com. Or you can connect with the link where you've listened to this podcast. You also may want to pick up a copy of her book wherever you purchase books by looking for the Copper Scrolls Project or on her website. And you'll definitely want to get a copy of this tremendous resource. Finally, we want to encourage you to check out IamAWatchman.com and subscribe to our email for all the latest news and information. You can also subscribe to us on YouTube or our podcast on SoundCloud. Again, thank you for being with us, and we look forward to joining you next time on A View from the Wall. A View from the Wall, in association with I Am A Watchman Ministries, exists to equip a worldwide audience with biblical truth, sharing it with others, and being prepared for Christ's imminent return. The team seeks to encourage, inspire, and equip watchmen for such a time as this. For information about the ministry and upcoming events, visit IamAWatchman.com. A View from the Wall is made possible by the team of dedicated pastors, editors, and the many contributors of I Am A Watchman Ministries. To support our efforts, give online at IamAWatchman.com and click on the Donate button. Thanks for listening, and join us again next time on A View from the Wall.